This week's TribCast is sponsored by the University of Texas at Arlington. UT Arlington is the third fastest growing doctoral public institution in the country, according to the Chronicle of Higher Education Almanac. Find out more at uta.edu. And Secure Democracy. Texans are strongly on board with making it easier to vote, writes Chris Perkins, a top Texas Republican pollster. Read the sponsor post on texastribune.org. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tribcast for April 2nd, 2021. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor for News and Politics for the Tribune. And this week we are joined by politics reporter Patrick Svitek. Good afternoon. Higher education reporter Kate McGee, who I think might be wearing a New York Mets shirt. I am. I am. It's baseball season now. I know. Astros won last night. (laughs) We like didn't even get to play because of COVID. So we're off to a great start. Indeed. And uh, demographics reporter Alexa Ura. Hello. Hello. Alexa, um, if she sounds grumpy, it's because she's gotten like two hours of sleep in the last week. (laughs) It's because I'm supposed to be off right now, but I'm not <laughs> thanks to this. <laughs> I told you she's grumpy. <laughs> so the reason Alexa has such little sleep is because the Texas legislative session really heated up this week. And one of the main ways that it heated up was with the handling of voting bills, um, bills being pushed by Republicans in the legislature to restrict voting access. We have SB7, which passed the Senate at what, 2.30 a.m. yesterday morning, Alexa? And then- Yesterday, yes. Yesterday, yes. And then HB6, which had a committee hearing until around 5 a.m. in the morning, uh, this morning, Friday morning uh, on April 2nd. So it's been a lot of action in the Capitol. We had some action outside the Capitol too, which we'll get to as well. But first, Alexa, can you just kind of explain to us what these bills would do? Yes. So to be clear, there are a ton of voting bills that have been filed by Republicans this year, most of them to uh, add new restrictions to the process and limit what local election officials can do when they're running their elections, obviously in very different communities, right? Harris County elections are pretty different to those in like Loving County. Um, But this week centered on the two priority bills in each chamber, uh, Senate Bill 7, uh, which was endorsed by every single Republican in the Senate and opposed by every Democrat in the Senate after seven hours of debate. Um, You know, it goes pretty far in focusing on what Harris County did in the 2020 election. It limits extended and overnight early voting. They had that 24-hour day of voting that would no longer be allowed. It prohibits the drive-through voting that they championed as well and that other counties had considered doing, um, just weren't able to make it possible so quickly and under those circumstances. You know, it does things like partisan poll watchers have a lot more room to work in polling places, including by um, being able to record voters who are getting assistance if the poll watcher thinks that that's somehow unlawful. 
Um, and it makes it illegal for local election officials, again, uh, targeting Harris County, to send out these applications to vote by mail to voters if the voter themselves haven't requested them. So it's pretty broad. Some of those things are also in HB6, the, the House bill that was in committee yesterday. Uh, it has the same ban on sending out those applications. Um, it does also broaden a lot of the powers that poll watchers have. Um, but SB7 more than HB6, I think it's sort of the broadest one that includes a lot of Republican priorities when it comes to restricting voting and really responding to the 2020 elections. Right. So, Alexa, you mentioned that a lot of this is in response to the actions of Harris County in November or in the run up to November 2020, when, as you mentioned, they had 24 hour polling site a 24-hour polling site, at least for one day, they mailed mail-in ballots kind of proactively without being asked to, to eligible voters. Um, mail-in ballot application. Ma- sorry, yes. And they you. tried to, but they weren't able to. They tr- yes. And, um, and, and various other, uh, other things that they did. What, what, what was wrong with those actions or those attempts? I mean, why, why, what is the problem that the people behind this bill say they're trying to address? Yeah, so I think like it's important to take us back to November and what a lot of different counties are trying to do because the state did very little to change its rules for voting during the pandemic. And so these counties were trying to figure out how can we make it easier to vote? And in Harris County, that resulted in this 24-hour voting place, which I think a lot of people thought was kind of gimmicky, but was meant to help like shift workers, right? Like they had a lot of port channel um, or port workers up there and like the ship channel workers who would get off at work at 2 a.m. and otherwise would go to sleep during the day during normal early voting hours. And so they voted at that time, right? Things like drive-through voting as well. Obviously, we were in a pandemic um, and picking up, sort of taking cues from a lot of like the curbside um, services that have emerged in the last year. What we've heard from Republicans is that while the Texas Election Code did not explicitly ban some of these things, they see them as going beyond kind of the spirit of the law. And so it's, you know, turning around and codifying rules that would ban things that were pursued. You know, I think a lot of the Republicans still think they were questionably or legally questionable when they tried to make this happen. Uh, The courts weren't necessarily on their side on a lot of these things, except for the mailing of applications uh, for mail-in ballots. Uh, But, you know, it's also part of this like larger banner of election integrity. Obviously, this isn't the first year we've heard this from Texas Republicans. It's largely built on these myths of widespread voter fraud um, for which there has not been really any evidence. There are documented and isolated cases, but not sort of the widespread um, sort of rhetoric that we've often heard. And then the other thing is is sort of, um, you know, we heard this a lot from Brian Hughes on the Senate floor on Wednesday night into Thursday morning saying, you know, we can't let locals set their own rules. Like the legislature has the power to set these rules and that's what we're doing here. So it's a combination of things, you know, but you can't separate it from this broader of movement by Republicans across the country to to really respond to the 2020 election by restricting voting, um, especially in areas where people of color really turned out in higher numbers than they normally did. Yeah, you know, in 2020, we saw two different instances of people voting past midnight in Harris County. In the primary, we saw it because at a historically Black university, 
the lines were so long that people had to wait hours upon hours to vote. And then in, uh, I guess not November, late October, we saw people voting after midnight because they wanted to. And now here we are with SB7 and we're addressing the voluntary after midnight voting more than we are the involuntary kind of forced to vote after midnight. It's an interesting legislative reaction to, to what we saw in the, the most recent election. How does this compare? I mean, the, a lot of the news nationally has been around the Georgia bill um, that uh, I guess is now is what has become law, right? Um, uh, how does how does what's being reviewed in Texas compare to what's happening there? Oh, geez, you're going to put me on the spot here. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it does have the one thing that I know for sure that it, that they both have is um, the prohibition on sending out these mail and ballot applications um, that is banned in Georgia and may could be banned in um, Texas by the end of the legislative session. Um, there there was another. I, I think though that there. There are some, well, there are, well, they're not sort of like perfect um, apples to apples sort of thing. Um, the thematically though, there is a lot of push to take power away from local election officials and some of their decision-making. That's definitely a theme in both. Um, there's something in the Georgia bill about receiving third-party funding, you know, in response in part to like Facebook and other, or Mark Zuckerberg, uh, founder of Facebook and other groups sort of trying to provide money so local election officials could kind of scale up some of their initiatives and like pay poll workers more so that they wouldn't run out before the end of the early voting period. There, there's some uh, language in SB7 that would also uh, prohibit some of that or put it under the oversight of um, Republican officials. Counties couldn't just accept it the way they might have last year. But I think thematically, um, there's, a, there's a push to take flexibility and power away from local election officials um, with a and you know in tech in Texas with a very specific eye to Harris County uh, given how diverse it is and how um, much they push the envelope in 2020. Patrick this is of course has to be viewed in the light of the 2020 election and, and what you know President Trump and other Republicans were saying about the integrity of the vote um, at that time. How much pressure do you think is on Republicans, you know, whether, well, I, I was going to say whether or not those allegations of fraud were true. I mean, we know that they were not true. There was no evidence of widespread fraud in this election or evidence that uh, Biden did anything but win it fairly. But obviously, there's been a lot of noise about this from the Republican Party. G do you feel there is their voters are putting them in a situation where where these leaders kind of feel like they need to do something along these lines? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's no doubt that uh, at the state and national levels right now, there's immense pressure on Republican officials to at least show that they're doing something on elections uh, because they're uh, at least their primary voters um, are demanding it after the 2020 election. Um, and, you know, it's, it's pretty ironic, obviously, because, you know, the line that you hear from the people who are pushing these bills is that, you know, um, you know, you know, even if there wasn't widespread fraud, it's clear that public confidence in elections has been shaken. Uh, and one of the main reasons public, <laughs> you know, confidence in elections has been shaken is because the former, you know, president from their party, <laughs> you know, spent months after his loss in November, you know, spreading misinformation and false claims about the integrity of, of the election that just took place. And so they're obviously in a, uh, a position where they're feeling a lot of political pressure um, to show, 
you know, that they're doing something to take on this issue, uh, but it's not necessarily the most sympathetic position because, um, you know, I think it's very clear if you look at polling and the trajectory of that public opinion over time, uh, it's their, you know, their former president uh, who played a big role in stoking uh, that lack of confidence in elections. So this bill, SB7, sailed through the Senate and now it goes to the House. What do we think about what what signals are we getting from house leadership about their appetite for this um or 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 what what they might be wanting to be doing along these these voting lines uh we don't have many signals to go off of yet um you know dade Phelan, the speaker of the house did uh when briscoe kane announced house bill six um the legislation that's a priority there dade Phelan did kind of endorse it um, by providing a quote as part of that like press release saying like this is what we want to do blah 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 um, you know HB6 obviously has some uh, provisions that have emerged as troublesome for voting rights folks and for local election folks it's nowhere it doesn't go nowhere near as far as SB7 would um, but you know they haven't even voted out uh, House Bill 6 from committee that that was this sort of marathon hearing. So I think there will at least be some slowdown in the momentum SB 7 came out of the Senate with, you know, this was filed like in early March. It was heard in committee and voted out the same day, two weeks later, and then half a week later voted out of the Senate. You know, I think there was some at least momentum that Dan Patrick and, and Senate Republicans were trying to put behind it. Um, I think given where the House is and its work, I, I wouldn't expect this to come up um, fairly quickly in, in the House, at least not for now. Those of us who uh, are legislative watchers, you know, we start to kind of see the markings of a bill that might become the bill that blows up politically and becomes, you know, maybe even quote unquote, like the bill of the session. Sometimes that's because the, the leadership really getting behind it, like we saw uh, last session with school finance. And sometimes it's, you know, the actions from outside or the, the, um, the energy it's producing. Uh, the, Alexa has nightmares about the bathroom bill in 2017, which she covered. And we, I feel like we started to see some of those markers this week, whether it was the late night debates, the late night hearings, but also the actions that we saw from the business community uh, last night, where, where a few corp corporations kind of came out and took some stances on this. Alexa, can you tell us a little bit about what we're hearing from, from those business groups? Yeah, there was definitely a striking sense of deja vu um, this week regarding these election bills and some of the response. Um, I think Patrick was the one who framed this as a here we go uh, when we got basically the first statement from American Airlines yesterday coming out against uh, Senate Bill 7, uh, you know, really specifically after Senate Bill 7 and the provisions in there, you know, saying we're strongly opposed to this. We need if we while we need to make uh, elections secure, um, we can't make it harder to vote in doing that. Um, you know, that around the same time, I think if not just soon before, Michael Dell, the CEO of Dell Technologies, um, posted his sort of public opposition to House Bill 6. Um, Dell has also uh, put this out themselves through kind of their corporate channels, but, you know, coming out against it as it was being considered in committee. And uh, very specifically after that, and later in the night, we saw uh, statements from Microsoft, um, AT&T and Southwest, Southwest Airlines. Those were definitely much uh, broader 
statements, you know, expressing support for voting access, but not really taking on these bills so specifically. Um, I think what remains to be seen is will this reach kind of the fever pitch that we saw in 2017 that kind of started off pretty slow, um, but grew pretty quickly uh, in terms of the business opposition to the bathroom bill, where you had executives from Fortune 500 companies weighing in, uh, you know, making calls to uh, legislative leadership about this bill, kind of putting some more weight behind their opposition, not just saying we oppose this. Um, and I think that's why we don't have a clear sense of yet. Uh, I think the national context that existed then sort of exists now in that back then, you know, you had had the fight in North Carolina and some of the economic arguments that had been made against their version of the bathroom bill. Here, these Texas bills are being considered in the shadow of the Georgia legislation and a lot of the criticism that these major companies received, especially those based in Atlanta, for not coming out against this legislation. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think there are a lot of eyes on the business community right now. I think the voting rights advocates in particular are trying to put some pressure, particularly in the aftermath of the sort of reckoning we saw this summer after uh, the death of George Floyd, where all these businesses had all of their posts about racial justice and uh, what they were willing to do and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, a lot of these bills do target voters of color or at least would affect voters of color differently than they would white voters. And so I think the question is, how does that play out this session? Do these companies sort of return to that um, language that they were using last summer and apply it to voting rights too? And what does that mean? Like, does that even sway Republicans? I think that's also, you know, the biggest question of all. Yeah, Patrick, I mean, how much, does this put much pressure on Republicans, do you feel? Or is, I mean, it, it is a different political climate now than it was in 2017. And uh, how much how much do you think this gets the notice of the kind of important GOP votes in the legislature? I think that's a good question. I think this is definitely different from the bathroom bill fight in that, um, you know, there there is not as much division within the GOP ranks on this issue, this issue of, quote, you know, election integrity, as there was on the bathroom bill. Um, I mean, you know, the bathroom bill debate, you know, originated in the Senate, which made it a priority from, you know, the beginning of that session. Um, it was not made a priority, you know, in the House from the beginning of that session. This session, both the House and the Senate, while they may have bills that have differences substantively, both chambers made it a priority early on, gave it low bill numbers. Um, the governor called it an emergency item. Um, so there's just much more, I think, uh, cohesive and unified Republican momentum behind this election issue than there ever was behind the bathroom uh, bill issue. Um, and again, we know that Greg Abbott wants to sign uh, an election bill this session uh, or coming off of this session, whereas for much of that session in 2017, um, you know, it was unclear what his position on the bathroom bill was. And so again, like definitely there are some markings here of a similar debate unraveling, uh, but I just don't think there's anywhere near the kind of like intra-party division on um, this elections issue that we saw with the, the bathroom bill in 2017. And I think one, one question we see here is, I mean, we just don't see that level of intra-party division in the legislature period right now, right? I mean, 2017 was a time where Joe Strauss and Dan Patrick, the Dan Patrick, the Lieutenant Governor, Joe Strauss, the Speaker at the time, were already kind of not best friends. And, and there was a, kind of a sharp contrast there. I mean, right now we don't, 
Dave Phelan, the new speaker, hasn't really been around long enough for us to have a great sense as to, to how that relationship will work out. But I mean, that's, that's, that's going to be key here for this and a lot of other bills that Dan Patrick is pushing along, right? Is how much does Dave Phelan want to play ball on these? Right. Um, and Dave Phelan so far has proven to be, um, you know, pretty in some of the hotter moments we've had in the session so far has proven to be pretty deferential to the Abbott position on some of these issues. We saw that in the electricity repricing debate, we're feeling more or less lined up with, with Abbott, um, taking a more deliberative approach and not jumping on that immediate fix um, that the Senate was pitching and trying to pressure the House to take up. And so, um, you know, with feeling appearing to be a, a speaker who is, aligning himself more with Abbott than Patrick. Um, you know, if Abbott wants a bill to move, and we know he wants a bill to move on this, I think feeling, you know, we'll, we'll make sure that there's a bill that's moving. Um, like I said, I mean, it's already a priority in the House. It's just, again, it may be a, there may be some substantive differences between, I think it's HB6 and SB7, um, but we already know to the House this is a priority, this issue, this general issue at least. Right. Right. Well, I'm sure we will be talking about this plenty in the coming weeks. So I think we'll cut it off there for now and hear a message from our sponsors. Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute's vision is for Texas to be the national leader in treating all people with mental health needs. Learn more at mmhpi.org and Texas Cattle Feeders Association. Real beef provides 10 essential nutrients, including high quality protein, zinc, iron, and B vitamins, with only one ingredient, beef. Learn more at tcfa.org. All right. So speaking of ongoing stories, Kate, here we are again talking about the eyes of Texas. It feels like just yesterday we were doing this, right? I know. You have written some stories already. You had a, a big, pretty explosive story uh, what, a few weeks ago about uh, various alumni and, and donors writing pretty incendiary emails to administration trying to keep this school song, which as we have since kind of confirmed through a university report was found to have been, it's the school song, they sing it after football games and it has roots in a campus minstrel show from over a century ago. Uh, a lot of students and particularly student athletes have have expressed concern about this and uh and expressed a desire to stop performing the song seeing the song after football games and at other settings but alumni have been pushing back against that your story first ran and that that raised a lot of eyebrows but then we have now found a whole new trove of emails right can you tell us a little bit first about how those came to light and also what they say Sure. So in the course of our reporting through the first batch of emails we got, um, we had gotten a smaller batch of emails previously uh, that someone else had, um, you know, put in an open records request for at UT just at a smaller period of time. And so comparing those two, we realized we were missing some emails that this other batch had received. And so we went back to UT and they found an additional 550 emails that they had not given us, um, many of which were from immediate weeks after the student athletes had put out their demands in June, which gave a much fuller picture of 
what was happening in the early weeks before President Hartzell had officially decided to keep the song. You know, the emails we had received in the first, first batch were mostly from the fall football season, kind of showing as the protests were continuing, how it was increasingly angering people um, and donors. But this trove kind of shows us how quickly um, people mobilized to push the school to keep the song in June of last year. And it also showed a whole list of um, more influential and connected people who were um, contacting the school to, to convince them to keep the song, including, which I think was the most notable name, was the former quarterback for Texas, Colt McCoy, who according to these emails, had been talking to other high profile big money donors and got on a conference call with a bunch of them to brainstorm ideas and ways in which they could convince the school to keep the song. One of two, one of two ideas that came out of that call were, you know, kind of a call your congressman kind of thing, call the athletic department, call and write President Hartzell and let them know we want to keep the song. And then the second idea was some kind of task force should be created to look at, you know, the song's history. And in the email that was eventually forwarded to Hartzell from that chain of emails, um, which eventually made them public because they were all forwarded to, to the president. Um, that was how the task force was kind of characterized to be this this group of people to illuminate the history and kind of show both sides of how um, how important this song was to people. Yeah, when your first story came out, there was kind of an opportunity to dismiss some, you know, quite offensive things that were said as kind of the the fringe of the group. And I think what really stood out about these emails was how influential and powerful some of these folks uh, who were talking about this were, you've got uh, Colt McCoy, uh, one of the, you know, most beloved quarterbacks on the UT football team in, in recent memory. You've got I, one donor, kind of part of these threads who had talked about how the university president was staying at his house in Santa Fe in a couple weeks. Uh, it, you know, this, this story, it, it really felt like kind of shed a light about kind of the, the big money, big influence conversations that were, that were, putting pressure on UT administration to keep this song because they cared so much about it. How much do we know about how much that factored into the decision making? It's difficult to, I mean, UT wouldn't talk to us for this story. They wouldn't answer questions that we sent via email. Um, you know, Hartzell had said previously after the first story came out that the emails quoted in our piece had no bearing on the decision-making. Um, but he really focused in that statement on the, the racist emails and, and kind of condemned them. Um, but he has not really talked about how these other donors who might not have said racist things as explicitly, but were really pushing for the song to stay, how much that played a role in his, in his decision-making. I mean, I think one thing that's kind of interesting to note here, a lot of the names that cropped up on these emails and people that we spoke to for the story, a lot of them have connections to McCombs School of Business School where Hartzell was the dean before becoming president. And I think that a lot of people, he has a lot of relationships with you know, high profile, rich people who came out of the business school. And you know, I think 
maybe the you know there was a, a line to the president's office from these people in a new way um, compared to previous presidents and I think that the that Hartzell um, just had more connections with these people you know that that allowed for them to to kind of speak up in in ways even though you know donors always kind of love to assert their influence in any kind of issue sure what you I know, thought this... was different oh sorry Matthew go ahead Alexa I what I also found um different or notable from this second batch of your reporting, Kate, was that these emails also sort of seem to illuminate the at least effort they were trying to do to recruit former athletes who were also Black. And it was like the the gap between the way they were talking about that while current Black athletes were speaking so vocally about how much this hurt them. It was It was also just really illuminating to see that given um, you know, you had people who were currently there, currently affected by it, and then this like ongoing conversation among powerful people and, and donors and how to kind of use their influence among even former athletes. I, I mean, I just thought it was really illuminating in ways we quite hadn't seen. Um, and, and then, and it really sort of shone a light on the contrast between folks who were there before um, and folks who are there now. I agree. And I think, you know, you all, you also, this controversy, there were multiple times in these interviews for both stories in which I would talk to people who would, who were supportive of the song and would point to previous black athletes who also still supported the song and say, well, see, they don't see, they don't think this is racist. So it's not racist and not really taking into consideration the thoughts and opinions of the current students and what they might be, what kind of perspective they might be bringing to the table. Um, and you see that too, you know, with the setting aside the story this week from the new emails, like you see this controversy continuing from other groups. I mean, the Legislative Black Caucus spoke up this week saying that they were unequivocally against the song um, and kind of condemning UT for like keeping it um, and saying that they're still going to be pushing UT to try and change their their mind. Um, you know, the, a bunch of students put out a list of demands and gave UT to improve diversity and inclusion on campus and gave UT a May 1st deadline to kind of meet some of those demands. So it feels like even though this, you know, UT has said this decision is final and, you know, people have pointed to the report that came out that said it was not overtly racist. And I think people who support the song really point to that and say, well, this situation's over. The students um, are not stopping and they are continuing to kind of put pressure on UT. And so I think that even if the, the song still plays in the fall, we're still going to see a lot of debate over um, how this, be, you know, how UT really continues or pushes to create a more inclusive campus in the way that these athletes were trying to do in the first place. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. If, if, if there was a hope that through this report and through some of these final decisions that have been made by the football coach and the administration, that that kind of ends this controversy or that it fizzles out, the last few weeks and months have shown that it doesn't seem to be going anywhere anytime soon. Agreed. Well, uh, great reporting and, and thanks for discussing it. I think that does it for us this week. Thank you to Kate, Patrick, and Alexa. Thank you to our producer, Justin. And thank you to our sponsors, the University of Texas at Arlington, Secure Democracy, 
the Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute, and the Texas Cattle Feeders Association. See you next week.